Hello, happy Friday, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I am your host, Jamie Sire, and we have the one and only Tyler Florence on the podcast today. We chat about the new season of The Great Food Truck Race, how and when he got his first start with Food Network, his restaurant in San Francisco. We get to so many topics. I'm excited for you guys to listen. But before we get to that, I have to tell you, since we started this podcast, I've been getting so much great feedback and a lot of questions too along the way from so many of my fans and listeners out there. Things from uh, just questions about our guests, about hosting the podcast in general, about Food Network, about food. So we figured we'd answer a few on the podcast today. I actually posted this in my Instagram story last night to see what was on your minds this week. And here are just a few of the questions. I'm so sorry if I don't get to yours in advance. We had some good ones and uh, maybe we'll try to do this again in a few weeks. Our first question is, what is the most interesting slash important thing you learned from doing the podcast? I guess I would have to say that uh, just how much we rely on technology. I know that we kind of already know that, but it's definitely been reinforced, especially doing the podcast from home, because we do all these interviews right now remotely, virtually over Zoom. Um, So everybody's computer is different. So getting all of our guests set up for that. And then on my end, um, even when I think that I have it all down, you know, sometimes it's it's not perfect. And we, we saw that happen with Robert Irvine, who was so gracious to reschedule our podcast interview for the next day when my computer completely crashed. So I think that is definitely something I've learned and never get too complacent with your technology because you never know when it is just going to uh, decide not to work on you. Next question, which is harder, being on TV or doing a podcast and why? I think this is a great question um, and I don't mean to take the easy way out here. I think they're both completely different. Um, I think doing the podcast has been a lot of fun for me just because a lot of times in television, you have such a limited amount of time for your interviews, especially, you know, back in my sports centers days, it would be, you know, you got three minutes with this guest, you got five minutes with this guest, and we really get to sit down and dive in with our guests on the podcast, which has been really, really fun for me, but they are both challenging in their own ways. Um, So I'll leave it at that. I love this next one. Do you feel compelled to cook immediately following the perfect food day answers? Definitely sometimes. I, I specifically remember Amberell's answer because I feel like she just took us on this whirlwind adventure that ended in Italy. And as she was describing, you know, all the pastas that she would have for dinner, I was just literally drooling all over my keyboard. Um, one of the things that she had mentioned was a wild boar ragu, which is one of my favorite dishes to cook. I did not go and, and cook that immediately, but I was definitely um, telling to do so. And last question for today, what few essentials do you need on hand to make quick, healthy meals? This is a great question and something I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit more of lately. I think have um, some frozen fish ready to go in your freezer. I, I think because fish can thaw out pretty quickly. So even if it is frozen, you can you can still get it on the table quickly if you haven't really planned ahead. I like to have vegetables um, ready to go in my crisper drawer because you can easily roast those and have those ready quickly. And I also have wild rice that we probably we eat like two or three times a week when we're trying to eat a little bit healthier or quinoa. Um, I think those are kind of my healthy staples. Um, I obviously don't eat like that all the time, but I'm trying to, to be a little bit more balanced these days. But all great questions. Please keep them coming. My DMs are open. And if you want to share any of your thoughts and questions, you can also do that on your own social media. You can tag Food Network. Also use the hashtag Food Network Obsessed so we can see it. But uh, my Instagram is Jamie Sire. And again, feel free to DM 
DM me any questions, comments, or um, ideas for the podcast. Love hearing from you on all of it. All right, let's get to our interview for today. We have a Food Network veteran on the pod today. He is the host of The Great Food Truck Race. He is a best-selling cookbook author, a restaurateur, and digital content creator. I mean, does this guy sleep? (laughs) Tyler Florence is our guest today. Welcome to the pod. How are you doing today? Uh, first of all, congratulations on the pod. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> and can I tell you, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, oh. I, I think you're doing a fantastic job. I listen every week and congratulations on all this. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. We, we love the, to hear people are obsessed. Obviously, that is the, the name of the podcast. And I know uh, some fans are going to be uh, obsessed with, with hearing from, from you. And actually, this is not the first time you and I have chatted virtually. We, we did a little uh, thing in November for a call conference. I loved our conversation. So I, I'm super excited to, to bring some of those um, insights that, that you dropped during that chat uh, to the podcast. Yeah. Well, let's start with the, the great food truck race, because obviously you just kicked off a brand new season. We've got seven new teams of food truck operators all over the country competing in this series of creative challenges, trying to win $50,000. But this time it's set in Alaska. And I, and I followed you along on Instagram throughout shooting. This was in like late fall and winter. So I, I feel like we need to start there because I already have so many questions. Harsh climate, short daylight hours. Had you been to Alaska before filming? Yeah, so that was my third time in Alaska. Okay. Uh, and and, and the, But the only other two times I'd been there before was in the summer. So I you know, <laughs> didn't necessarily know what to expect. And, you know, I, I, I've been to New Hampshire in the winter. I, I've been to Lake Tahoe, right? I, <laughs> I sort of know cold. I had no idea what I was talking about. I had no idea what I was in for because, my God, like the high was about seven degrees on most Ooh. days. And, and the low was was like somewhere between negative seven and negative 10 on. And so, so every day it would feel if it cracked five or got close to 10 degrees, it would feel kind of balmy after a while. Like you could <laughs> start to feel the sun on your face just a little bit. Right. Um, but uh, the nights are brutally cold and the days are short. Right. So you're kind of close to Arctic circle. Right. So mm-hmm. there, there isn't as much room on the, the little blue marble that we all live on at that high towards the polar cap. So the sun comes up, you you know, kind of late and sets kind of early, right? So the sun would come up every day around 10 wow. and set around 3.30. But then we would we would have these shoot days were six hours long and four and a half, five hours long, right? Because not, not only were we, were we uh, sh- shooting with 75 people, we're also shooting with 21 cast members, seven trucks, you know, and four or five different setups per episode, plus the reality of going out and just shooting on the on the mean streets of Alaska. And uh, it, it was it was an adventure. It was tough. It was the toughest physical season I think we'd ever have just from a logistics standpoint, but it was the most rewarding because it was it was absolutely beautiful. It was that season that uh, we had always talked about doing forever. And we finally got a chance to pull it off. And man, was it absolutely beautiful. We had so much fun. I'm so excited to, to see the, the season unfold. I'm from Montana originally, so I do know cold, but nothing like that. That sounds like a, on another level. So uh, I can't imagine what these competitors were going through. And in the premiere, we actually saw the teams competing in 
a challenge where they had to get their food truck keys out of a 200 pound block of ice. I, I think that really sets the tone for just how gritty, how frigid this season is, as you kind of just alluded to. What other types of challenges can we expect throughout the season without giving too much away, of course? Yeah, well, Britain, our um, our legendary stunt coordinator and producer who produces all the stunts and challenges, she was uh, feeling particularly creative this season because, uh, man, <laughs> she she put them through it, right? And so we, we would have these um, these meetings, you know, like 24 hours before or 12 hours for the next day, kind of dialing in exactly what they were going to be. And so she had the whole setup, set up ready to rock and roll. And then she would call me the night before and we'd have kind of a big production meeting um, with myself, the producer and the director, just so we can kind of walk through what's happening. And, and, and I'm like, where do you get these crazy ideas from? Because this is kind of genius. You know what I mean? This is like, ooh. Like, so, all right, so the so if you missed the first episode, A, you got to go back and watch it mm-hmm. on Food Network On Demand and also Discovery Plus. So th- they had to, normally I'll just give them their keys and they have to go get their trucks in episode one. But but this particular episode, they had to dig their keys out of a 200 pound block of ice that was frozen right in the middle. So so think about just the setup of all that stuff. Like those keys had to, had to get placing those blocks of ice at least 10 hours ahead of time. So she had been working on that for a couple of days and I just applaud her. Like she would set this stuff up. I'm like, this is next level. This is next level. (laughs) I'm so impressed. That's amazing. I mean, do you ever have any input in any of that or does she come up with all this on her own? You know, she does a great job and she's been with us for about, for about five years. So my input is like, just tell me where to stand. And, and, you know, absolutely. And it sounds great. So she, we, we get a chance to kind of get together just to kind of walk through what they're doing. And, uh, and other than that, like we, we have very, very talented people that, that do great work. So we let them go. You know, you talk about the climate impacting production. How does it impact the competitors as well? I mean, trying to complete all these challenges in these, uh, you know, frigid conditions. The, the that was also a real challenge because we had contestants from Walnut Creek, California, that is sort of like close to wine country. So mm-hmm. they were like, they were like thin skinned Chardonnay grapes up there in the cold. <laughs> and uh, we had people from balmy Houston, Texas, uh, that, that had never even seen snow before, much less been to Alaska. So um, it was, it was brutally cold. And, and to me, like I, I, I was a little fearful for them, even from a wardrobe standpoint, because I was like, well, like, where's your big heavy coat? Where's your earmuffs? I know you guys are going to be outside for seven Seven hours and seven degree weather, right? So it was it was real, and we had these meetings every day with all the contestants about safety first, and and making sure if you're if you're feeling you know uncomfortable be, uh, about being outside in the weather that you can you know rotate inside the truck, and there were heaters inside the truck, so it was kind of like their little mobile sauna uh, once they kind of got out on the street, um, and when they started to serve. But um, all the the what they call the stack, where it's myself and all the contestants are lined up and we're giving them information or we're giving, you know, uh, it's the, or the elimination, that kind of thing. We want to make sure that they were all super protected and, uh, and well taken care of. But, and I thought the production team just did an amazing job. So just offset, there were sort of like these little heat tents because not only did we have to keep everybody protected, but we also had to do it safe with COVID protocol, right? So there were several tents just off camera where the, where the teams could go, uh, collectively by themselves and kind of get warm. And then we'd hop out for three 
three or four minutes and shoot some more content and then hop back into the tent. Um, but it, it was very, very well orchestrated. And, and all things considered, I thought we did a really good job taking care of the entire production team and also the cast members. But And, and we had fun doing it, too. Oh, that's the most important part. I mean, were there any other challenges that that, that whole situation provided while you guys were up there shooting? So we shot two seasons this year. We shot season 13, which is on the air right now, and season 14, which is coming up a little bit later in San Francisco. So we shot with 75 people in two cities and two states and not one COVID outbreak amongst anyone. So I was, we were very, very lucky, uh, but we were very strict about everything. We had a very tight production bubble and the cast members had their own bubble. Um, so, and, and every time we were, you know, in contact with each other, we had masks on um, right before we, you know, had to take them off to deliver content to camera, but then we put them right back on again. And we had COVID protocol officers making sure everyone was, um, was, you know, staying six feet apart and everyone was protected. And we, we had to take COVID tests every day. Um, so th- that's what reality of television production looks and feels like right now. But we did it and we created great content and we did it safely and uh, not one COVID case in two seasons. That, that is incredible. And, I, and I've heard similar stories from other productions throughout Food Network during this time. And it really is impressive just the way that you guys are able to create television during a, a very, very challenging time. I, I've never been to Alaska. It's definitely on on the bucket list. I'm curious how how the reception was locally. I, I've heard nothing but wonderful things about the people up there, how nice and welcome they are. Did you did you get that vibe from people when you guys were up there? I did. Uh, you know, uh, Alaska is a big state for Food Network. We've got a lot of fans up there and they came out. And so we, we've been um, from Los Angeles to somewhere on the East Coast nine times, right? So we've crossed the country nine times and we've, we've gone from, you know, Los Angeles to Chicago via Route 66 and we've done uh, little micro routes to the South and, and around Texas and and the smaller towns always has like the biggest impact for the show and it was the same thing in, in Alaska, right? So we started in Anchorage and huge success there and then we started going to these like real small towns like Seward and Palmer and Holmes Homer, Alaska, and Seward and Homer are right there on the coast. And those are two just huge seafood capitals, uh, not only for Alaska, but also for the world. I mean, the, the the best halibut, you know, the best salmon, the best salmon you've ever tasted in your entire life. And I, I think I ate my body weight in Alaskan King crab legs when I was up there, <laughs> maybe even a couple of times, right? Uh, but uh, the seafood was fantastic. The people were so warm, so friendly, and they really came out for us. We had lines and lines of people, I mean, just braving the shivering cold. They're a tough breed up there in Alaska. They're, they've got They've got they've got thick skin and and they're they're more than happy to stand out in the freezing cold. Uh, where us from California, like I said, felt like a, a thin skinned Chardonnay grape uh, with a super super heavy parka on, and they're out there in like a tech jumper, just sort of waiting in line for for tater tots. But uh, we, we had so much fun, and the people were lovely. Yeah, I'm sure that they're they're probably like out in Bermuda shorts when it when it reaches ten <laughs> degrees. You guys yeah, are yeah. still still shivering. Um, yeah. I mean, you've you've kind of alluded to some of these past seasons. You've you've hosted every season of Great Food Truck Race. Uh, premiered back in 2010. Um, any memorable moments that have stuck with you after all this time? Um, standing on top of the Flatiron Building in New York City at the finale of season one, I really felt like this was going to be something big. And and I just love telling the story of the success of the Great Food Truck Race, because back in 2010, when we launched the show, you know, I would do the Today Show and Good Morning America. And it was really hard to get traction on the conversation of our food trucks because nobody got it. And nobody really trusted food trucks. It always seemed like that kind of sketchy thing out by the construction site that nobody really wanted to eat from. 
But we knew the trend was popping and we knew that it was, you know, starting to become a big deal in New York and Los Angeles and Portland. And it was enough to say, okay, I think we got something here. So we did one season and the first season between the first season where we are now, it would, the first season was sort of like, it was goofy. Like we, we had, we had a food truck with a gigantic hot dog on top of it. And so we said <laughs> it was, it was like food trucks meets cannonball run. Right. So we're, we're just going to take seven, you know, trucks full of goofy characters. And we're all going to race from coast to coast. And the grand prize, the grand prize then was a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And so, and we just had a, a lot of fun doing it. So we, we've had so many just memorable moments of standing at like Lubeck, Maine, uh, which is the uh, furthest most point of the contiguous United States uh, with one season. And, and that was the elimination uh, location. And then, you know, in Washington, D.C., in front of the Capitol building for an elimination. And then we've been to uh, Key West, Florida twice for eliminations, which is great. And and all the all the really amazing stops in between. And that's one of the most beautiful things about working for Food Network is the ability to travel, get out in America, see, uh, you know, the, all these amazing towns, big and small. And because of Food Network, I, I feel like I, I know most cities in America fairly intimately. Like I know the airport. I know my favorite restaurants. I know my favorite hotel because we've just been traveling for 25 years now. It's my 25th year on television with Food Network. And uh, and it's just been a blast. So like the Food, uh, the food Network and also the Great Food Truck Race, it's just been this iconic, you know, there's nothing like it on television. You know, there's one of one like food truck competition on four wheels. And, uh, and we've done so much good for um, a certain sector of the restaurant industry to prove that young people, young startups can jump into the game. Raising four and a half, five million dollars for a restaurant, that's hard to do, right? And there's also, there's a lot of gamble that comes along with that. But if you've got a dream and you've got a great product and you've got, um, you know, uh, a really good vision on what it is and you want to get out there for, say, 40,000 bucks, right? You can um, lease a food truck, skin it, get your food handler's permit, go to Costco, get some food and hit the streets and boom, you're in business with like an app, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's a really, really low bar to kind of get out in the world and start, you know, having a, a mobile restaurant business and you can do the same same cover count. You can charge the same ticket price per item and really have an amazing business for yourselves for kind of next to nothing, right? And so, and it's kind of a benign thing. If, if you lost your your aunt's 25 grand that she invested in your taco truck, I'm sure eventually she'll talk to you at Thanksgiving again, but it's not <laughs> the end of the world, right? But it, it, unless you say it does fail, you can just skin it and call it something else tomorrow, right? And so 13 seasons of the Great Food Truck Race, we've had nine winners go on to open successful brick and mortar restaurants. Mm. And, I, and I just love our hit rate. Right. I just love that. So we've we've proven that, you know, both the supply and the demand for the model is effective. Right. We've shown the world that with hard work, you can put six figures a year in your pocket and it scales. You could have three or four food trucks in no time at all. And we've also created an, an epic uh, fan base for the genre. Right. So because of the great food truck race, food trucks are busy coast to coast. And I, I just love the fact that we're contributing to the success of all these small stories is such a great level. Right. And and it, it's been wild. I mean, you know, good, rolling into, you know, food truck festivals and talking to people on the street all the time. And they, they're, they're grateful for the show because mm -hmm. it shines a spotlight on what they're doing. It sounds like you still kind of keep up with a lot of these contestants as well to see, you know, how they're doing, what they've done with the success, with the money, and maybe even some of the people that didn't win, but have gone on to, to be successful. How much do you keep tabs on people? I stay in touch with a lot of them. And I really enjoy that relationship. I'm 
pretty close with a dozen or so people that have been on the great food truck race and kind of tracked their career. Because at the end of the day, there's not a lot of avenues for mentorship out there, right? There's not a lot of places that you can go and have a board of directors or your kitchen cabinet of folks that you like to talk to and throw ideas by and call when you've had a bad day or or call when you've had a success story. And, and so there, there's a lot of people uh, that I keep up with that, you know, that will, they'll just text me and say, listen, dude, I, you know, I, my, my, I had to close my food truck today. You got them at the talk. I'm like, yeah, dude, absolutely. Right. And, or, or, Hey, you know, we just, um, we just got a, a PPP loan from the government. I'm so excited that we can stay on, you know, we could, we could open up for another three months. And I'm like, that's so great. High five, good news. And so I, I, I think it's really important because it's such an intimate relationship being on the show. Like we're together for five weeks, you know, we're together for five weeks. And if I unfortunately took your keys away from you on the first episode or you made it all the way to the finale and I handed you 50 grand in cash, like somewhere along the line, you learn something about being in business and, and all of those success stories of watching those teams grow. And then also everything that I've done personally in my own career, I'm just so happy to share it. And not only with them, share it with everybody. Like we've been on Clubhouse recently, you mm-hmm. know, talking to a lot of folks there about how to be successful and stay successful. And, and so, yeah, so we keep up with a lot of them and it's probably quietly one of the most rewarding parts of the show. I love hearing that because it, it is such a connection that you've obviously formed with these people and I'd love to hear that it continues on past filming and we know you're you're obviously a veteran star of Food Network. You, you started on the network with a show called How to Boil Water. You had Food 911, Tyler's Ultimate. You're definitely like one of the we could call you like an OG Food Network star OG. for sure. Yes. Um, but take us back. I always love to hear people's uh, origin stories. How did you get started with the network initially? Like I said, it's my 20 20- Fifth anniversary on Food Network this summer, right? Wow. So I started. Ni- I started in 1996, and I'm not sure where you were in 1996, but I was. Uh, I was in uh, high school. I, yeah, right. <laughs> so I was. I was 25 years old, and I was uh, the executive chef of a restaurant in Midtown Manhattan called Chibo, an Italian restaurant, and it's still there. I'm super proud of it, it and it's on the corner of 42nd Street and Second Avenue, right on the cusp of Tudor City. It's a great Italian restaurant, right? And we were really getting getting a lot of buzz. We we're getting reviews in all the big uh, newspapers and magazines, and it was my like my first big foyer, and I'd, I'd been in New York City for a couple of years at that point, and so but it's my first big executive chef position, and we were just crushing it. I was super excited, and then one night. One of the executives walked in to the restaurant having dinner with friends. You know, I, and I, I had my the chef's coat. I got dirty when I was on the line, and then I had my clean chef's coat that I'd walk around the restaurant in. So I popped on my clean, crisp coat. You know, did a loop uh, just like I would do every night. Walk around, and say hi, introduce myself. I'm Tyler Florence. I was dinner, and uh, she goes, "That was amazing." And you know, and she handed me her business card, and she was you know a producer on this new cable network called the Food Network, and it was just on in, in New York and LA at the time. And uh, she said, "Hey, uh, you know, would you?" You like to be on television. And the interesting thing about it, I kind of grew up in television anyway, right? So my mom was the CFO of the local NBC station in Greenville, South Carolina when I was growing up, right? So she'd handle all the financing, close all the books. And so my mom was like under a lot of pressure on a regular basis to make sure that all the books were closed. She often worked weekends, right? So she would take my older brother and myself to the network and then we would just run around the television studio <laughs> while she was up there like, you know, 
pushing a pencil and making sure the numbers met up. And so we, we would sit in the director's booth and watch the director cut the news live. You know, like, give me camera one, go into camera two and fade in and three, two, one, and mm-hmm. boom, you're live now. And so we would watch that. And we had, we were on guest appearances with like local kids shows all the time. So in this weird way, like growing up and understanding what being in a television uh, studio was all about, understanding in, in a very loose way, what, be, what you know, the directorship was all about. And, uh, and then understanding what food was all about. My first appearance on Food Network was on a show that was called In Food Today. And it was hosted by David Rosengarten, right? Okay. And, uh, and I was executive chef of Chibo at the time. And then so it was a live, a live six o'clock news show about news in the world of food, right? So they would talk <laughs> about whatever's going on. And right at the end, at the, the last segment, they would do a live guest appearance with a chef. And then I came down, prepped all my food. I knew what three and a half minutes was all about. I was very, as articulate as I could possibly be. If you go back and watch it, I was obviously very nervous, but just did a great job, right? I mean, did like a little morel salad with fresh watercress and did something else, a pasta. I can't remember what it was exactly, <laughs> but just crushed it. And I, I felt like I did a bad job, but um, Bob Tushman, uh, who's the former president of the net, president of programming of the network, came down and he was the executive producer of that show at the time. And he came down and said, that was great. Can you come back next week? And I'm like, are you kidding me? And so I went back <laughs> to the restaurant. I went back to the restaurant that night. And again, you know, prepped all my own food, showed up on time, always said yes. And I went back to the restaurant that night and I sat at my desk and I knew that that was going to be the first day of the rest of my life. I just knew it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly how. And, and there was a lot of buzz around like food and food programming and television back then because like MTV approached me with a show concept called Eats and Beats. And it was like <laughs> me and, you know, yeah, it was me and musical stars in a house and we're cooking. It was like a pool party. I want to see so, that show. <laughs> yeah, right. I, th- I think we got to bring that back. It, it, it was very like it was very like MTV Spring Break 1996, right? I mean, it was, it. It was Limp Biscuit and whatever. Right? <laughs> and and so, so that conversation was happening in a lot of different places. And so, you know, to me, like being executive chef of a restaurant, knew, knowing what I knew how to do really, really well, and knowing that this um, opportunity was few and far between and incredibly rare. And the second they called and offered me a full-time job, I accepted without hesitation and just leapt into the abyss of not necessarily knowing what I was going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I signed the deal with food network back. And so, so between 1996 and 1999, I hosted, um, you know, a hundred or so different shows. I was like on Sarah Moulton live and Amber Lagasse live and like, and, and hosted specials and kind of building up FaceTime where I was starting to get recognized on the street on a regular basis. And people were like, Oh, Hey, you're the guy from TV. And I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, this is real. This is happening. <laughs> and, and so in 1999, they called me and said, hey, listen, we got this crazy idea for a show called Food 911, where you travel around the country and you help people out with their food emergencies. So when you call 911, the cops show up. But if they burn their tuna noodle casserole, you show up. And I'm like, <laughs> I love it. Let's go. Right. So so we hopped into that show. And again, you know, it, I, I had voice lessons. They definitely like shaped me up in about a year to really to be the best presenter I could be at the time. And I just enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, we traveled around with the same production company for God, six and a half years, shooting 90 episodes of Food 911 a year. Wow. And we were Emma Lagasse's lead in and we're just having the time of my life worked really, really hard. Like I was gone 250 nights a year gone, right? Not in my own bed in, in a different hotel room. So um, so I, I didn't really have a big choice, but I so I had to walk away from the restaurant business and, and jump into media full time. But like my, I, what I, my thought was, if I 
don't do this now, I'll never understand what it's like. If I don't do this now, because I can always go back and get another restaurant gig. I mean, that, that, that's always easy. There's always the availabilities there. But this is a singular thing, right? So I jumped in, made, obviously made the right decision, and it changed my life in, in ways that I just can't even thank Food Network enough for. So Judy Girard, um, who was the very first president of the network, um, she's retired now. She lives in Wilmington, North Carolina, and she runs a, um, a school for girls, a leadership school for girls. And uh, she called me uh, last year and wanted to know if I could come down and do a, uh, a charity event to raise money for her school. And I couldn't say yes fast enough. Like she signed my, <laughs> she signed my first contract way back in the day to thank her for taking a risk on me and to see what my life has turned out to become. It's a gift. And, and I, I say that to every like new, young, fresh talent on Food Network. It is a gift. And welcome to the club. The table has gotten so big. There's room for everybody. And it's just such an exciting opportunity. And it, it, it changes your life. And it, it's also an opportunity to really connect with a lot of people too. And that, that's the most important thing you can never, ever, ever give up, right? Like people are looking to us and at us and for us for solutions, right? For not only for, for friendship and infotainment, right? So we can show them great recipes and how to cook, but just great, reliable information on, on how they can make their lives better. And so you always have to improve yourself. You always have to, you know, figure out, okay, what can I do this year that makes my information or my cooking or kind of what we're up to even stickier with folks. And it's, it's been an amazing wild ride and we're super excited. So like, here we are like 25 years later, you know, crushing the great food truck race season 13, season 14. Um, a lot of new fun stuff. We're also, um, my production company, we're here in my television studio. So we have a production company. We're shooting lots of digital content for the mm-hmm. network now too, which is really exciting. And, uh, and we got a lot of fun stuff in the pipeline too. So it's just been, it's been a, qu- a crazy, crazy wild ride. Not only is Tyler on TV, but remember, he's a restaurateur as well. And we're going to talk all about that coming up next. And you have been able to go back to the restaurant industry as well and kind of do both because obviously you have a restaurant in San Francisco, Wayfair Tavern, known for the very delicious fried chicken. I can I can per- personally vouch for since I, I lived in San Francisco for five years. And in speaking to you last fall, I, w- I was very impressed with just how you and your company was really able to pivot during the pandemic from, you know, you starting a food truck version of Wayfair Tavern on your own. You had the, mm-hmm. the curated grocery boxes, the meal kits. Is there anything that you implemented during this time that will continue beyond the pandemic? Well, there's a couple of things that we're thinking about continuing on well past this, and, and that's delivery, but not not just like local delivery, but national delivery, right? But what we're really excited about is you know uh, opportunities with companies like Gold Belly, which has been a lifesaver, a lifeline for a lot of restaurants to be able to produce their signature dish at scale and ship it coast to coast. So now on Mondays, Wafer Tavern is a factory where we produce fried chicken to go. And so we're doing a couple thousand orders of that a week, which is really exciting. So, and that's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. A That's of, a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of coordination to make sure that we can get all that chicken, uh, you know, packed up, cryovacked, and shipped out on time. And uh, and also the other thing that I think is really exciting is the idea of micro grocery, right? Um, in the restaurant business, you know, there's there's a, in, in the food world, there's a couple places where you can get your food from. And that's farmers markets and grocery stores and restaurants. And I think grocery stores right now are ripe for innovation and disruption. What we're really good at is sourcing fantastic ingredients and getting to them to you the last mile. 
And that's sort of like a hot plate of food right in front of you with a good glass of wine and spectacular service. But if we could think through what that last mile looks like and actually get a box of groceries that has a lot of the same ingredients, right? So it's the same chicken breast, but it's marinated in a cryovac. And it's a deli container full of fantastic cookie dough. And it's chicken noodle soup, or it's our soup of the day. And it's a salad kit. Things that you can actually meal prep with for the week. That's an amazing opportunity for a lot of restaurants to bifurcate what they're doing and not just think about that dollar in, dollar out meal service, but think about how can we get our signature gourmet product in people's refrigerators. So that's one thing that that I I think we're going to end up sticking with long term. That is definitely something that I've enjoyed as well. And I think as a consumer, um, you know, it it allows people to continue to to support their their favorite restaurants and their local establishments um, without necessarily, if maybe they don't feel comfortable dining in yet, um, or maybe they just really have, you know, become accustomed to, to getting these really high quality ingredients um, from a different source. I, I think it's just like a, a really fun way to to kind of bring that restaurant experience home. Um, and I know you you brought up your production company, and, and I wanted to just to talk a little bit a little bit about the parallels between what you saw um, from your production of Uncrushable. Obviously, that was made in the wake of the 2017 Napa fires, um, and just kind of the parallels to to what you saw in that aftermath to what you've seen over the past year, just in terms of. I think people and community helping each other and just kind of having that hope and kind of fostering that hope. Well, I was just talking to um, the CEO of Visit California yesterday on the phone, as a matter of fact. And, and so Visit California is the state of California's advertising arm. So mm-hmm. all those like come Visit California commercials, and I've done a couple of them, they produce all those. And they've got like a $200 million ad budget that produces $1.2 billion of tourism. And we were just talking about this yesterday because like they, they had reached out and we'd reached out to them and said, can we produce some more amazing content just to let people know that the state's open, mm-hmm. that restaurants are back in business and to really kind of turn this into a feel good program. And they loved it. So we're kind of working on that, sculpting that storyline right now. But we we just reflected on the fact that we've been in recovery since 2017. 2017 was the first big fire that was not a, a generational thing. So in the state of California, and it's definitely climate change. And it's also the, the fact that it's happening through telephone poles, right? Are the major factor for wildfires in the state of California, but just because they're not being maintained properly, right? Mm-hmm. There's like 4 million power poles in the state of California. And, and sometimes they're, they haven't been cared for or replaced in 15 or 20 years. And these are this wooden, big wooden sticks in the ground, right? So as the winds get higher with El Nino, as, uh, as the temperature gets drier, these are basically matchsticks that tip over and catch the field on fire and then catch the forest on fire and then the town on fire. And it happens every single year. So we're starting to address that from an infrastructure standpoint going, you know, and, and this is kind of meeting climate change head on, that the climate is kind of dealing us a different deal now. So we can't have, you know, exposed power lines up and down the state because it's just too dangerous, right? So starting in 2017, we had this big, massive fire and 18 fires broke out within two hours of each other on October 7th, 2017, 18 fires. So it wasn't like a one flashpoint that was, it was the heavy wind snapping over these power poles all up and down between, uh, between Northern Marin County and the top of Napa. And so all of a sudden these huge fires started to break out and connect and the spread. First year we lost 44 people 
whole, like the fires burned for about a month and uh, we lost, it was like 8,000 structures, 8,000 buildings and and it burned, it jumped the 101 and burned into uh, into Sonoma, into um, Santa Rosa where Guy Fieri lives. And it was, it was just a horrible thing. So we connected with the state of California and produced a documentary film on what recovery looked and felt like in 2017. And it was one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard, much less had the privilege to create because of the human interest and and how people pulled together and a sense of tragedy, right? So everyone knew because fire knows no economic boundary. It doesn't matter if you have a small, modest house or a big mansion, fire will burn your house down. And so a lot of people were seemingly left with nothing and meeting in the middle from different economic classes going, okay, we're all in this together. And being able to document that story and, and how how we, we band together, we raised money, uh, we got construction started really, really quickly through Habitats of Humanity to get buildings in Roner Park, which was completely destroyed and, and, and leveled. And a lot of these homes are firefighters and teachers and police officers that kind of live up there. And it was just absolutely devastating. So we got a chance to to capture all this in a really beautiful, thoughtful way. And it, I, I think it's my finest work. I mean, out of everything that we've done, um, it was sort of my first foyer in, into making movies. I didn't really know exactly what I was doing, but you know, being in television for 20 five years and having a production company that that primarily just shot television, mm-hmm. but really kind of thinking through, okay, what is, you know, if we, we can do a half an hour really, really well, all right, now let's do 90 minutes, right? And so- you know, we've been trying to crank out since 2017. Um, you know, uh, 2018 was a big fire. 2019 was even bigger. 2020 was the first what we called our giga fire, right? Where over a million acres burned in the state of California. And so we're partnering with um, Jose Andreas with World Central Kitchen and making sure. And Guy and I sort of tackle Northern California together every single year. It's kind of like a family reunion, unfortunately. <laughs> it's like here, we, like, here we go again. We're doing it. Uh, but we get together every year and we, you know, wherever the community needs it the most, because like when the fire starts the evacuation start and they usually go to the Sonoma County Fair facility where they have these like big buildings mm-hmm. um, it's usually for you know shows and the, the car shows and that kind of thing but you know we'll start setting up cots we'll start setting up food systems right away because we know how to do it now and with that I mean so you learn how to start feeding six seven eight thousand people three meals a day and so that's like a newfound skill that we have now to be able to to take care of other people but it was scary it's still scary but I think through that we've learned how to be better people and we've learned how to take care and think about our larger community at a whole. Absolutely, which is very important, obviously, during a, a global pandemic as well. Um, I did want to ask you about um, some of your other projects that you have coming up. I, I know you, you're working on a new steakhouse at Chase Center, home of the Golden State Warriors. And as yep. somebody who covered the Warriors, who comes from a, a sports broadcasting background, I, I per- personally witnessed just you know how much food has been integrated into the game day experience, almost making it as much of a draw as the games themselves. How exciting is that uh, to be part of that evolution? Because I know you're, you're you're a big sports fan as well. I'm a big sports fan. I, I love basketball. I love baseball. And, uh, you know, I, growing up in upstate South Carolina, I was a big Atlanta Braves fan growing up. And then moving to New York, you kind of just fall in love with the Yankees. And now we've been in uh, Northern California for uh, I got 13, 14 years now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the Giants are, you yeah. know, we're, we're, we're friends with, the, you know, we're like, we're friends with the organization, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have, we've got tickets, we go to games. 
games. We love to follow along. And the Warriors, I mean, what an amazing success story that is, right? So three years ago, when the Warriors organization shared the blueprints of the new arena with me, and they were like, okay, we're not talking to any uh, food service contractors yet. You're the first one. Pick your space. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a partnership between myself and the Warriors, and it's, it's literally the owner's restaurant, right? So it's called Miller and Lux, and it's an American steakhouse, and uh, we're going to be opening probably the start, and we're delayed for sure. We're delayed a year, but we're probably going to be opening the first of the 21-22 season because we want to make sure that we can get people there. And the beautiful thing about the story of the restaurant, right? So Miller and Lux is a name that I stumbled across when doing research on the neighborhood, right? So it's in it's in Dogpatch, just on the on the south side of San Francisco, just past, um, and they, they've renamed it Mission Rock, right? So in okay. Mission Rock, Mission Bay. So it's got a new fancy I, name. I now. used to live in uh, Petrero Hill, so just just okay, over, right. just right by there, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, of course, you know exactly where it is. The arena stands now used to be a meatpacking district back in the late 1800s. Oh, cool. Right? So all of the, exactly, I thought, oh my God, it's amazing. So it was called <laughs> Butcherstown. It was called Butcherstown. So all the cattle that was raised in the San Joaquin Valley was uh, put onto railroad cars and trucked up to San Francisco to be processed and salted and shipped around the world because they salted food back then. And so Miller and Lux was the company that had the biggest footprint in the Butcherstown that is in the same neighborhood, exactly standing exactly where the new arena is today. So it was two immigrants that came from Germany in like the middle, like 1850s. And uh, they started the, the largest cattle company in the state of California. They were known as the Cattle Kings of California. So the company went out of business in 1926 and no one's ever done anything with the trademark. I, I, I thought the name was just fabulous. I love the story. So I researched it, bought the domain name, re-registered the trademark. And now that history is with me, which is great. So I get a chance to tell that story all over again. So so we're super excited. So Miller and Lux, brand new American Steakhouse. Uh, it's going to open definitely Q4 2021. And we're on track to kind of have like a late September, early October launch. And I, I just can't wait to do it all over again. That sounds like, uh, I mean, the perfect evening, right? Like go have a, a an amazing steak dinner, go watch the Warriors. As you mentioned, you're, you're sitting uh, doing this interview from your, your kitchen studio there. And I know you've created uh, Wolf It Down, which is sort of this virtual culinary hub. You've got YouTube videos, a podcast of your own virtual cooking classes, recipes. Um, is it safe to say that you are really trying to inspire this next generation of food obsessed people? I just love the fact that doing what we've done for the last 25 years has kind of given us a lot of skills, both high and low, right? So we can, you know, we can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan, right? I mean, we, we can we can create the content and we can deliver like world-class like food video content on a lot of different levels. So we're just excited about kind of playing with this new thing we're doing, right? It's our new, you know, foodie hub called Wolf It Down. And and we're just having a great time doing it. And, and so connecting all of our partners and all of our friends that we've been working with for the last like couple of years and kind of bringing them into like one location location in one place where you can find us and you can see us and you can pick it up and you can hold it and you can taste it and you can talk about it. Like that to me kind of feels important right now. So we're creating partnerships with olive oil companies in the state of California, knife makers in California, caviar producers in California. We got t-shirts and hats and all kinds of fun stuff. And you can watch videos and you can join us live for live virtual cooking classes every Thursday, which is super exciting. So wolfadown.com forward slash live is the ticket window. The class starts at 4 p.m. on the West Coast and 7 p.m. on the East Coast. 
videos and the classes are getting bigger every single week. And it's the, the technology today is kind of amazing, right? It is. I mean, it's kind of amazing. The fact that I can be in your kitchen and you can be in mine and we can cook the same dish together and you can hold up your saute pan and tell me, is this what you mean? Is this thick enough? Like, is it done yet? Is this that? I'm like, absolutely. Two more minutes, put it back in the oven. It's great. Right. And that kind of feedback, real time feedback is kind of interesting. So starting last March, when the, when the pandemic happened and Food Network said, okay, I, I think we're going to have to shift our production schedule from the first part of the year. Cause normally we're shooting kind of about now to the last part of the year. We said, okay, what, what, what are we going to do and what can we do? So we just started pivoting, pivoting into this live virtual thing. And so we hosted, got over 90 cooking classes last year, you know, and like saying the classes were in the 250, 300, we had a couple classes over a thousand people and partnering up with uh, corporations, uh, uh, grocery store chains, like cloud companies, tech companies here in California. And it was just, it was wild. And we got really good at it really quickly. And so now that's part of our permanent new thing that we're doing now. And, uh, and again, and like, like most things we were doing what feels good and then we'll figure out how to turn it into a business business later. But right now we're just having a good time. Right. And I think that's <laughs> the most important thing. Right. So we're producing great content for the people we're cranking out and we're inviting people into our space where, you know, we, we get to be included in theirs. We get to see their kids. You know what I mean? They, they'll, they, they get a chance to hold up their plate of food every single week and say that, you know, Tyler, you and I made this together and, and it is so incredibly rewarding. That's awesome. No, I think that that is definitely one of the things that a positive thing that has come over the last year, right? This, this ability to really produce from home. I mean, we, we've transformed our apartment into a, a home studio, but it's fun because you, you can still connect with people in a virtual way. Obviously, you know, nothing can replace the in-person experience, but I think that being able to include people from all over the world and the country is, is really, really special. So uh, I, we could go on and on for, for several hours talking, but uh, I did want to ask you one final question that we have yes. been asking all of our guests on Food Network Obsessed, and you probably know what it is since you said you've been listening every week, but anybody out there who is listening for the first time, here is our final question. What would be on the menu for your perfect food day. So we're talking breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert. No rules. You can time travel, spend however much money you want. You can cook it yourself, have somebody in the past cook it, whatever you want. So so it's definitely going to have eggs. It's definitely going to have barbecue. It's definitely going to have caviar. It's definitely going to... So I've got sort of a mix a mix match thing going on. But I, I, I got to tell you, um, you know, we, we have uh, chickens. We've had chickens for got 10 years or so. Uh-huh. And so every day we will get you know a half dozen or eight fresh new eggs. So we've, we've always got a ton of eggs. My 13-year-old, his banana bread during pandemic was learning how to make an omelet. So we, we've been crushing omelets at the house and then he's gotten actually really, really good at it. So to me, like an like, like a perfect omelet with like a little bit of just like either Monterey Jack cheese melted through. Very, very simple, right? Mm-hmm. Or like Telegio or some sort of like super Ooh, creamy high yeah. fat cheese that melts a Havarti. Anything that gets like really melty, really stretchy. Like the magic of two eggs, because I think three is a little too thick and one's not thick enough, right? Structure-wise. You know, scramble the eggs. Don't put anything in it. You don't put anything that would dilute the protein to keep the omelet from rolling up tightly upon itself, right? So if you add milk to it, it's going to be too soft. You're going to mm-hmm. have a really hard time flipping over. And you have to get a really, really good nonstick pan, right? And you have to you have to take care of that nonstick pan. That nonstick pan is not anything that you cook anything else in and you never put anything metal in the bottom of that pan. It is for omelets only and you got to respect the pan. So I, I think and a no perfect cooking omelet, spray. No cooking spray, I found out like no sev- cooking, several years ago. Like you're not supposed yeah, to do that either. No cooking it. spray. I, I do like a little bit of butter in mine. So, so I'll, I'll take two eggs, crack and mix them really, really well together. I mean, really well, right? So there's no streaks of white, no streaks of yellow, perfectly amalgamated just with a fork, right? And then I'll, I'll take a tablespoon or two of butter, pop it down in the, in the bottom 
bottom and then pour the eggs on top of that, turn the temperature down low and give it a nice stir, right? So you want the eggs to start to set like creme brulee. Mm -hmm. So that happens at about 200 degrees. So it's really, really low. So you got to be patient with it and you'll feel like you're not doing anything. It feels like, okay, <laughs> this is not cooking, but it actually is. You'll start to see a little steam rise to it and then the proteins will start to set. And then once you're ready to flip it, so the, the magic of a perfectly soft egg that tastes creamy with no cream is the technique of perfectly cooking it, right? So once you stir it together and it starts to set what's going to feel like loose scrambled eggs, put it back into place, give it a nice big smooth and really smooth over with your spatula and then try not to do anything else to it on the inside. So that custard-like creme brulee texture will reveal itself once you cut it, once you're finished, right? Again, your favorite soft shredded melty cheese. It could be brie, could be uh, borson cheese, could be Havarti, could be cheddar, wh whatever's going to give you that really unctuous melty cheese vibe. That's what you want to go with. And then when you, when you roll it over, right? So you, you want to take the omelet pan starting from six o'clock where the handle is. You want to revert it back to nine, right? And then you want to take the a rubber spatula and start to kind of pull away with the backside of the omelet facing your hand and then have it kind of catch the cheese. And then it's two big flips to get down to the bottom. So if you're if you're ginger with it, you'll run the risk of tearing it. But it's like you want to flip it once so the, the end of the omelet will hit the cheese and stick. And then it's two big flips, right? To get to the bottom. And, right? and then and then you pop it on the plate. You boom, you give it a good flip, tighten it up a little bit of a towel if you want to. And then you put some caviar on it. So that that's oh, my that's that's my that's my thing, right? A perfectly cooked French omelet with a, with a scoop of caviar on it. If if you're asking me, you know what I mean. Yeah, I think you are. I am. If you're asking me, that's my that's my perfect breakfast. And then for lunch, to me, like I love like being here in Northern California. It's like it's all about being healthy. So it's like fresh salads, you know, beets, spinach, nice sort of like French vinaigrette, sunflower seeds, lots of good texture, lots of good veggies. That to me is always like my choice lunch because it. It sustains my energy all day long. And then at dinner, I'm, I'm kind of a barbecue obsessed person, right? Mm -hmm. So I smoke barbecue every weekend. Every weekend, I got my big green egg out. And every weekend, I'm either smoking shoulder or I'm smoking ribs or I'm smoking beef ribs. And uh, and, I, and my wife just got me these two big cowboy cauldrons, these two big outdoor on the range, massive cast iron steel kettle grills. Amazing. Cowboy, cal cowboy cauldron. Look it up when you get time, <laughs> okay. right? It's, they're, they're crazy. I just got two of them for my birthday. I'm just sort of meat obsessed, right? So like really good steaks, you know, really great kind of melty beef shoulder, perfectly smoked beef ribs. That to me, it's just sort of like, it makes my eyes roll back in my head. Right. That's how good it is. <laughs> so, so I, I would, I would go decadent for breakfast. I'd go healthy for lunch. And then I would just like deep, rich, melty smoked meat for dinner all day long. And what about dessert? Are you a, are you a sweets guy or, or you skip dessert? Huh. I usually skip dessert. I'm not, I'm not a big same. guy. I appreciate yeah. it. I appreciate it. I'm, like, I'm what they call pig over cake, right? Yeah, I'm Sam. <laughs> I'm pig, pig over cake all day long. All right. Yeah. Well, that sounds, I mean, I, I'm going to be dreaming about that omelet for, for a while now. I might have to go make one uh, myself and try, try my hand at it. That sounds like a fantastic food day. I'm also a big barbecue person. So uh, we're, we're definitely on the same page. And I so appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat and join us on Food Network Obsessed. It's been such a joy chatting with you and uh, continued success in all of your projects. Jamie, congratulations on this. Welcome to Food Network. We couldn't be happier. There's so much room at the table and I wish you nothing but success in all this. Congratulations. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So 
great catching up with Tyler and talking about what he's been up to, which is a lot, apparently. And for more, Tyler, you can catch new episodes of The Great Food Truck Race Alaska on Sundays at 10, 9 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. As always, thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us if you aren't already so you don't miss a single thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to rate and review. We love when you do that. That's it for now. We will catch you foodies next Friday. Thank you.